Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. President Biden must soon make a key decision about American troop levels in Afghanistan. There are currently about 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan, but under a deal negotiated last year between the United States and the Taliban, all American troops would be withdrawn by May 2021. This deal was negotiated by the Trump administration, and it is unclear whether or not the new Biden administration will honor it. My guest today is journalist Jessica Donati, who covers the war in Afghanistan for the Wall Street Journal. She is the author of a new book about the U.S. military in Afghanistan called Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. We kick off discussing the recent history of U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan from 2001, when the first special forces and CIA officers deployed to help evict the Taliban from power. We then discuss some of the choices previous presidents have made about the role of the U.S. military in Afghanistan before having a longer conversation about the decision now facing the new Biden administration. Jessica Donati's book gives a first-hand account of the role of U.S. Special Forces, which have carried most of the military burden in Afghanistan. Her book has gotten some stellar reviews. I encourage you to check it out, and I'll post a link to an excerpt of the book that recently ran in The Atlantic. This conversation is both very timely. As I speak, the U.S. Secretary of Defense is conferring with NATO allies about troop levels in Afghanistan, uh, but it also gives you the context you need to understand the role of the U.S. military in Afghanistan and Biden's coming decision. All right, now here is my conversation with Jessica Donati, journalist and author of Eagle Down. The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So um, after the September 11 attacks, the first, uh, the first people into Afghanistan were members of the Special Forces alongside uh, members of the CIA, and their role was to work with um, Afghan uh, sort of militia leaders, the leaders of the Northern Alliance, uh, to help them um, basically oust the Taliban. Uh, they were successful in that. Within a few months, they had um, they had taken over Kabul. 
And uh, you saw the situation, the security situation decline uh, through to sort of the Obama administration's uh, 2009 decision to surge troops. The idea behind that was more troops, you would reinvest in in the good war and uh, you would turn around the security situation. Uh, That's been uh, an argument now that has been made um, to various degrees over the years, obviously, uh, after U.S. troop numbers peaked at um, around 100,000 um, in 2011, uh, Obama wanted to um, go back down to zero. He wanted to pull them out. He wanted to maintain a campaign pledge in his second term to end the U.S. war there and end forever wars. You get to 2014 and um, he announced the cha- the change of the mission. So going from a sort of U.S. war and combat operations, the Obama administration said that they had ended their role in combat. They had got down to fewer than 10,000 troops. They had 9,800 and, and that they were on their way out. Uh, what actually happened at that point was uh, you saw security uh, decline. You saw the Taliban in um 2015 take over a major city, the city of Kunduz, uh, and uh, a sort of a, a secret uh, U.S. special forces operation alongside Afghan commandos to retake the city. Uh, and it became clear at that point that if the U.S. continued with the plan to fully withdraw, they would uh, they would they risked losing uh, more cities in Afghanistan, and they risked uh, basically losing the war. So. The Obama administration uh, in their final years cancelled the plan to withdraw and they ended up with sort of somewhere between 8,000 and 9,000 troops. So what was the mission of those 8,000, 9,000 troops? Like what, what were they doing? This is, this is the thing. Uh, the Obama administration, uh, ha- they had sort of spun this to the media uh, saying that they had ended the war, that combat operations were over. It was just training, advising, and assisting. Uh, Now, the reality is that the training and advising became sort of back to the war effort. These uh, special forces were going in alongside Afghan commandos, and they were going on uh, the type of missions that I describe in my book. Uh, They were involved in helping the commandos retake villages and towns. Um, They were involved in operations to capture uh, alleged insurgent commanders. And so, uh, I mean, all but in name, they were back in a war footing. Um, That wasn't something that the Obama administration ever admitted. Because these were mostly special forces, the idea is that they could say that these are special forces who are advising and training as opposed to, you know, conducting large scale kinetic operations. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I mean, to the to the members of the special forces, their their sort of lives hadn't changed that much from when they were going in and working alongside uh, villagers or command commandos. And this is what special uh, forces are trained to do. They're trained to work with native forces and uh, and, and help build them up. So it really was just a White House spin at that point, um, which is the way that, you know, most special forces soldiers view it. Uh, you know, they, they see this as sort of just a, a political argument. So, you know, I know around this this time you were embedding with special forces, you were reporting closely on the work of special forces. Can you just describe, you know, what perhaps a typical mission looked like? Can you kind of tell us a story from your book that examines how 
one of these missions unfolded during this era? Um, I think I need to uh, I need to explain one thing first. Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, when the, one of the problems with the special with with the uh, special forces missions is that the even though they've become the primary um, primary uh, way that the U.S. is is fighting the war, the media does not have access to what they do. Uh, the um, journalists are not really allowed to embed with them for any uh, length of time. Uh, the, the most that you'll get is sort of a visit to one of their camps, and maybe you'll get to stay overnight. But that's the best. That's the best that you'll get. What what we did uh, was we uh, figured out which um, Afghan commandos were working alongside the teams because every U.S. Special Forces team, which is known as uh, as an ODA. Um, is working alongside uh, a group of Afghan commandos. And so we figured out that if we could embed with the Afghan commandos, we would then have access mm. to the U.S. Special Forces and we'd be able to figure out what they were doing. We'd be able to perhaps even meet with them or talk with them on sort of on the side. Mm. Okay, so that was the kind of the back door to the U.S. Uh, Special Forces operation. That's fascinating. So- right, the only way to find out what they were what what they were doing, and this is the this is the problem with the, with the mission that they that they have now, is that whereas in sort of more traditional war, there's conventional forces, and this is what was happening in Afghanistan earlier, journalists could just embed with the unit for you know a week or however long, and you know see for themselves what what was happening with the excuse that these are special forces, even though they're doing all of the fighting now, journalists are still not allowed uh, access. So could you then describe, um, based on how you were able to access uh, these missions and information about these missions, like what is one typical mission that you reported on uh, that's perhaps illustrative of the role of the U.S. military during this era? In the, in the book, a lot of the missions that are described are based on interviews uh, with Green Berets that I came to know over, over time. You know, you meet one and uh, they tell you what happened and then you get through to some other guys and they'll and you be able to build the operation together. Uh, one example um, it would be we, we went to, um, to the city of Kunduz because this city fell in 2015 and it fell again the following year. And uh, and there was no information on what the U.S. had had done or its involvement in the operation to recapture the city. And we suspected that they'd had a large role in, in, in the operation. And so we embedded with the Afghan commanders that we were, that were there. Um, we uh, Just getting to Kunduz was a challenge. There were no flights from Kabul. So we got on an Afghan airline and we flew to Badakhshan, uh, which is a province on the border with China. And then we drove... Uh, to the base in Kunduz, which took us two days. Uh, and when we showed up, uh, nobody could believe that we'd made it because much of the area between uh, Badakhshan and Kunduz was under uh, Taliban control or it was contested. Um, and so we spent a week there. I was there with my Afghan colleague, uh, Habib Totakhel, and an Australian photographer. And we just re- reconstructed what had happened by talking to the Afghans and talking to the American soldiers that we found there, although they weren't supposed to talk to us. Um, we managed to, to pick up what had happened. Um, my Afghan colleague found footage uh, on the mobile phones of the Afghan commanders of the battle that they had fought just uh, you know a few weeks earlier to recapture the city. Uh, what the the way that that it had been spun in the media through American and Afghan officials was that the Afghan commandos had gone in and recaptured the city, and this was supposed to 
build confidence in the Afghan government. Uh, what we uh, what what we found was that in fact the U.S. had pretty much planned and led this mission, and the teams had gone in. They'd done a lot of the fighting. They had brought in the airstrikes, uh, brought in airstrikes, and sort of helped clear the city that way. So Obama leaves office, as you said, with about nine thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand uh, troops in Afghanistan. Trump comes to office, pledging to draw down troops even further. How did the military engagement sort of evolve or change during the the Trump years? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, Trump basically encountered the same problem that Obama did. His his desire and his instinct was to pull out, but much of the national security establishment was telling him that it would be catastrophic if he did this and that terrorist groups would regain a foothold and threaten the U.S. and no president wants to be responsible for an attack on their home home soil. So what Trump eventually, he had a, a McMaster came in and McMaster lobbied hard for more troops. And the idea was that they were going to turn around the war effort and uh, put themselves in a better negotiating position with the Taliban. So this is sort of the similar argument that uh, that that the Obama administration had sort of before they made the decision to surge in 2009. The idea was that they could turn things around if only they had more troops and more time. Um, and uh, so they did surge troops. They went up uh, several thousand, uh, and then uh, Trump lost patience, and things weren't getting any better. And so you saw this what rapid withdrawal. And in the course of the rapid withdrawal you had the administration negotiate this um, withdrawal agreement with the Taliban, which is the subject of all the debate that you see now about what the Biden administration should do in Afghanistan. Yeah, so so right now there are about 2,500 U.S. troops uh, left in Afghanistan, uh, and these troops also face this deadline of May to fully withdraw to comply with the deal between the U.S. and the Taliban that was negotiated, I think, in like February 2020, perhaps. How would you describe sort of the, the Biden administration's choices uh, that are coming down the pipe? I mean, he, he finds himself in the same situation that Obama and Trump did uh, before him. Uh, he is known to, to, he was one of the few voices in the Obama administration that did not want to increase troops. And what you saw from the Afghan study group uh, just, just this week was a recommendation to not uh, withdraw as stipulated by the agreement, a recommendation to increase troops uh, back up to 4,500 to be able to uh, continue to have uh, enough of a presence to keep the country relatively uh, stable or the war at a stalemate. Um, and so his choices, he has, he has a, he's got a very small space to work in because he has this rapid de- deadline that's coming up in May. Uh, if he pulls all of the troops out, uh, you've got a risk that the Taliban are going to drop the their side of the deal and decide that this is the moment that they can try and capture Kabul because now the U.S. is gone. If he decides that he's going to keep troops there and ignore the deadline in the deal, he risks that the Taliban might walk away anyway and try that because what we've seen over the years is that, I mean, over the past 20 years, the Taliban have been resilient. They don't respond to... Uh, international pressure. I mean, they've got a lot of legitimacy now, but that they didn't have that before the deal. And uh, you know, if they lose that, it's not it, it's not said that they are going to want to come back. So, 
uh, he's in a tricky position um, and uh, it, it seems that there's no way for him to win at this point um, other than perhaps to pull troops out and say this was Trump's deal. It wasn't his deal. And the U.S. can't pull out of agreements every four years and therefore he had no choice but to go with it. And then, you know, uh, see the uh, collapse of, of Afghanistan into an even worse civil war than we see right now. Biden has this choice, as you said, either honor the agreement and pull the troops out, keep troops in or increase troop levels, as was recommended by this recent uh, congressional bipartisan you know, Afghanistan study group report. I, what do you think would be the wisest course? I mean, I've, I often say this when I'm interviewing people or when, you know, about the stories that we write, that it's very easy to be critical of the decisions that uh, that people make in Afghanistan because, because you're on the outside. And if I was in the position of making a decision, it's just it's very difficult to say. I mean, uh, I, I have a lot of Afghan friends uh, who are part of the um, post-2001 order and the idea that if the U.S. left, their entire world would um, collapse is it's really hard to advocate for something like that. But what I also saw when I was there was a worsening violence year after year. And um, the U.S. troop presence seemed to, to be really just delaying uh, the inevitable at some point. Uh, the Afghan uh, Afghans would have to sort it out amongst themselves without uh, the U.S. propping up one side versus the other side. Um, so it's, it's difficult. But I think, you know, the, the peace agreement... It's been very criticized, but it did bring the Afghan government and the Taliban to the table, recognizing each other for the first time ever. Uh, And so if there's something that can be done to continue to try to support that, then uh, I think the U.S. should do everything possible, whether that's trying to get an extension uh, from the Taliban to keep keep the troops there or, you know, the promise of removing sanctions or aid. I mean, whatever it is, I think it's worth trying. I mean, I remember one of the key criticisms of that deal between the United States and and the Taliban was that it specifically excluded the Afghan government. Um, Is there a current peace process between the Afghan government and the Taliban of which to speak? One of the the problems that the the Obama administration had before Trump was that they, uh, the policy was that they would not talk to the Taliban without the Afghan government being present. Uh, and the Taliban's position was the opposite, that they would only talk to the U.S. first. Uh, the deal happened because the Trump administration decided, OK, we'll talk first for the Taliban, figure that out. And then uh, and then we'll then the, the government can join. And uh, I mean, that made sense because in the, from the Afghan government's point of view, it's not in their interest to join a process that's going to uh, remove some of their power. Um, so uh, they they. Uh, obstructed it along the way. And I think at this point, what you see in Doha is that some initial sort of steps have been made towards figuring out how a peace process could work. Um, But it's going very slowly because each side is waiting to see how how the Americans choose to, to choose to go. And depending on what they do, it's going to advantage one side over the other. Uh, And I guess, um, on that line, what do you read into the significance of Zalmay Khalilzad staying on as a U.S. negotiator? And you know, for the audience who are unaware, he was George Bush's former ambassador to the U.N., former ambassador to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, 
and came, you know, was not serving the U.S. government during much of the Obama administration, if at all, but came back to uh, be tapped as Trump's envoy to Afghanistan to to this peace process. What's the significance of him him staying on board right now? I think it shows that the Biden that the president is leaning towards continuing with. Uh, with Trump's sort of plan. Um, I think leaving the guy that negotiated the deal in place signals uh, a willingness to sort of stick to the deal. And the deal does not offer a whole lot of flexibility when it comes to withdrawing troops because the conditions placed on the US withdrawal are very strict, uh, whereas the conditions placed on the Taliban side are a bit hazier when it comes to what exactly they need to do uh, versus Al Qaeda and all of these things. Um, I mean, also, Zal has a lot of experience. Uh, I mean, he's been involved in this for you know twenty years since the beginning, and also he's uh, born in Afghanistan. He speaks the local languages. He understands the culture uh, better than anybody uh, in, in on the U.S. side. So I think that's also important. And uh, I, and yeah, um, I guess uh, lastly, you know, look going forward, you know, is there any kind of inflection point you see coming up in the in the coming weeks or months? I know we have this May potential withdrawal date. Um, is there anything leading up to that that you'll be looking for that will suggest to you one way or another how the Biden administration may, may take things? I mean, I'm sort of looking every day to see uh to see what comes out of the of the Biden administration they really don't have any time because we're in, in February now and if they're going to make a full withdrawal then they're going to have to start pulling out by April uh if not then they need to get some sort of agreement by the Taliban to not withdraw uh sooner so they they really have only weeks and so I'm looking out every day for for signals but it seems that they haven't decided what to do yet uh, well, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on your book. It's garnered a, a great deal of praise and I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jessica. That was uh, very helpful. As I said, uh, it really does, I think, provide some good context for understanding uh, what's going to go into this decision made by President Biden very soon uh, about troop levels in Afghanistan. So thank you so much to Jessica. Do check out her book and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.